0: This podcast is for adults 21 years of age or older. We talk about cannabis history and advertise cannabis products. If you're not 21, come back when you are. Spoke Media. Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah. And Bean. And welcome to another episode of Great Moments in Weed History. On this podcast, my partner Bean and I, who are both cannabis journalists and media makers, Go over some of the more fascinating points in the very, 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 very long history of human being cannabis relations. Isn't that right, Bean? That is exactly what we do. Yep. And I do not know the story that we're about to hear. I've not heard it before. Bean has researched and written it. and He's going to be telling it to me and telling it to you. We're going to smoke some weed. We're going to drink some tasty beverages. We're going to have a good time. So come join us. So Bean, what do you got for us today? I've got a story today about somebody who overcame incredible
1: adversity in their life and used it to fuel a passion for cannabis and for advocacy and for activism that really changed the world.
0: Wow, that sounds incredible. Definitely a lot of adversity in cannabis stories from the last hundred years, but it's always great to hear that somebody can come out of their adversity and truly have an impact on the world through cannabis or with cannabis. This sounds like a great one, man I can't wait to hear it. This story is by,
1: for, and of cannabis <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and shall not perish from the land. I see that you are rolling up a nice appropriately sized fatty J for us. That's right. If you are uh, listening and you're not quite there yet, this is the point where you can hit pause and Roll up a J or split up a blunt or what do you do with the dabs? You you right. dabulate them? You scoop them, you, you drop them, you drip them, and you sip them. You smack them up, you flip them, and you rub them down. That's and Whatever right. you're going to do, That's do that right. now because right when you come back, we're going to be ready
0: for another great,
1: great moment in weed history. <laughs>
0: Spoke (laughs) media. Okie doke. So as I fold over this rolling paper right here, Bean, why don't you get us started?
1: All right. Let's get right into it. The hero of today's great moment in weed history grew up in Houston, Texas, one of five brothers raised by conservative parents who were both active in Republican politics.
0: Whoa, okay, kind of an unexpected start to a story about a weed hero. You know what I mean? Like, uh, obviously, in broad strokes, conservative politics in America do not agree with cannabis liberalization. In fact, quite the opposite. But it sounds like that might be a little bit different in this situation. It's
1: going to be quite different in this situation. And we should shout out our libertarian brothers and sisters on the conservative side who have always seen the war on cannabis for what it is. Big government run amok, the trampling of individual rights. I mean, this really should be a conservative issue. But, you know, that's not obviously how it has always played out.
0: Yeah, seriously. I mean, I don't think a lot of people who even subscribe to conservative politics in America today, realize that those politics right now are a complete perversion of what the conservative ethos is really all about in its purest form.
1: Yeah, there's something about armed representatives of the state kicking your door down of your private residence unannounced in order to arrest you and drag you to prison for having a plant That just doesn't seem to me in line with uh, a philosophy that values personal liberty and getting the government off our back.
0: Yeah, seriously. So, you know, if you happen to be a person who out there who subscribes to conservative politics, make sure they're the right ones.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So... Getting back to our hero of today's story, uh, he was a born thrill seeker who loved riding his Harley fast and hard down the highways of Texas and flying ultralight planes. After dropping out of college, he found work as a lighting technician, and he was traveling the country to help like big-time musical acts set up their stage shows.
0: Ah, interesting. Okay, so... This is a a man of many hobbies, clearly. Uh, He's into vehicles in general, it seems like. And uh, what band was it that uh, he was touring with? Well, he worked for all the, you know, he worked for the company.
1: So they would go with all different kinds of acts. So then in 1990, uh, our hero was 27 years old and working, you know, this job as a lighting technician when he slipped on a catwalk while setting up the lights for an Aerosmith concert in New Jersey and suffered a spinal injury that left him paralyzed from the waist down.
0: Ah, shit. That is really rough, man. It's it's definitely, you know, that that can be a, a dangerous work environment, and that's really a tragic accident.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this person would require the use of a
0: wheelchair for the rest of his life. Wow. Huh. Okay, a person who is in a wheelchair, who did something big with cannabis. Is it the guy who founded Oaksterdam University? Yes. Richard Lee? Yes, it's Richard Lee. Oh, amazing. So, Oaksterdam University is an educational institution in Oakland, California, uh, that teaches people all about cannabis. Oaksterdam University was first founded in 2007 here in Oakland, California. Since then, over 15,000 students have crossed through our doors to learn about cannabis, cannabis policy, growing, and how to change the law in their neck of the woods. The basic skills you need to know to work with cannabis, there is a place, a university, where you can learn all that shit, and it was founded By this guy, Richard Lee, who is a cannabis legend for opening that place.
1: Yeah, and we're we're gonna hear his whole story, and he's done many, many things, and- and Oaksterdam University is is it's a vocational school mm-hmm. for cannabis. It was the first one, and it'll teach you any aspect, cultivation, hash making, but also you know how to own, how to open or operate a dispensary, or simply how to be a bud tender. Wow. Um, and it's helped so many people get their foot in the door of this legal industry and has also always focused on taking people from the cannabis community mm-hmm. who have... The passion and the skills that they learned in the underground and simply teaching them how to translate those skills and passion to the legal industry. And countless, countless people who've graduated from Oaksterdam have gone on to be, you know, not just leaders in the cannabis industry, but also just to have good jobs.
0: That's fantastic. And, you know, cannabis is a world where there's all these disciplines and all these practices that you don't formally learn anywhere, right? There wasn't really a place where you could go and become educated. You had to kind of experience it by living the outlaw lifestyle and learning how to do it by actually doing it. But this was the first place to formalize that education and in that way to create a culture of sharing methods of learning from each other's practices, which really elevates the entire practice as a whole.
1: Yeah, and the other thing is just, you know, you might have 10, 15, 20, 30 years of experience in the cultivation or distribution of cannabis, but a resume that, you know, can reflect none of that, you know. Yeah. So it gave people a way also to show to prospective employers in the legal industry that you were serious and you were knowledgeable. And it's been a great boon, I think, to our community in making sure that people can make that really sometimes very difficult transition.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that's amazing, and I don't really know the backstory of Oaksterdam University or Richard Lee, so I'm super excited to hear this.
1: All right, well, we'll go back to this, you know, moment of, of very serious adversity in 1990. He has this injury, and so today... Texas actually has a medical cannabis program. There's a handful of dispensaries that serve patients. Uh, and there are plans in the works to really scale that up. So changes even coming to Texas. We used to what's really funny is when I used to work at high times back in the day and people would sometimes say, "What do you think's going to be the last state to legalize?" Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'd say Texas, Sometimes I'd say Oklahoma, which now has hundreds and hundreds of dispensaries.
0: Yeah, that's a crazy thing, actually. I I would have guessed the most conservative state, right? So, I mean, at this point, I think there's four states that don't have some kind of decriminalization or medical cannabis program. And I know, like, Idaho is one of them, perhaps. There's like, or, or, you know, you would say, like, oh, Georgia, you know, but Georgia has medical cannabis. So it's kind of cool, actually, that... There are all these places that you associate with very, very anti-pot politics that now have medical programs. You would just hope that while there's people selling cannabis in those states, there's also people who got in trouble for it before the law changed who are now being ameliorated because that's an issue all over the country.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, this is all going on now, but back in 1990 when Richard Lee uh, had this accident, Wheelchair or no wheelchair, there was no medical cannabis. And he knew that he could be arrested at any moment for using this medicine that he found incredibly helpful to him in all kinds of ways in maintaining a quality of life.
0: Yeah, and let's keep in mind that at this point, in places where cannabis is illegal, it is very illegal. The laws are what could be described as draconian. You know, for having a little bit of weed, you can get arrested, you can do jail time. If you happen to be in a school zone or if you're driving or something like that, I mean, the penalties are just compounded and compounded. It can destroy your life to get caught with just a little bit. So
1: despite this this very real risk to his freedom, once Richard discovered that cannabis really worked wonders for him, he absolutely refused to keep quiet about it. Said it has to be a day of protest
0: and continue fighting our own government. Wow, so as we've seen in so many stories on this show, a person that discovers cannabis later in life and takes to it, they become an evangelist for it. I feel like we've seen a lot of that in the last few years as cannabis is liberalized, all these people who never really questioned why they didn't try it, you know, they never really questioned the stigmas against it. We're suddenly like, oh, wait a minute, and they try for the first time at, like, age 30 or 40 or 50, and a new pothead is born, and there's nothing more fun than a full-grown adult pot baby. Yes, especially for us. Yeah. Because
1: it's also like a window back into your own... Weed babyhood. Yeah. When you see people who are just entranced by this new dawning realization. And it reminds me of the Bob Marley line the stone that the builder refused will be the head cornerstone. You know, sometimes people who come up in this very, very anti weed environment, this very conservative environment, this very authoritarian environment, once weed cracks through that, And, you know, here for Richard Lee, it's obviously just a huge change in his quality of life. But for other people, it could be a huge change in your consciousness.
0: Wow, that is so interesting because, I mean, I think it is something that we take for granted, especially when we look out into the world and see people who are, quote unquote, still asleep, right? What would it be like to be a person who is, Set In their ways and in their thinking for years and years and years and then to suddenly wake up as an adult I mean, it's true. I, I'm sure that you know, just the The drastic nature of that change would really make you appreciate weed in a way that we might never
1: Yeah, and so for Richard Lee, like I said, he makes this vow. I am going to tell the world About this. Hell yeah. Uh, And despite having grown up in this very anti weed environment. So, what do you think is the first thing he has to do? What's the first audience he has to convince?
0: Hmm. His family?
1: His parents. Uh, Right. That's going to be an uphill battle. It sure is. So, both of his parents adamantly opposed legalization at the time, but they also raised him to speak truth to power. You know, it's like these conservative values are all weed values in a way, but they've been subverted somehow, let's say. Right, right, right. So Richard began his one-man public education campaign by telling his parents about his personal experience with cannabis, Mm. how much it helped him after this accident, you know, not just physically, but also psychologically and and maybe even spiritually, if you Mm. want to put it that way. This did not go over well with his parents, at least not at first. And he ended up going a year without speaking to either of his parents.
0: Wow, that's pretty crazy. It hits home for me in in some ways. You know, I I can definitely understand that. Uh, My mom is very cool and open-minded on cannabis. My dad is not. And you know, it's very sad when you see otherwise smart, intelligent people just completely succumb to their conditioning. You know what I mean? And it's sort of ironic. You know, we were talking about like being able to wake up. Well, in order to wake up, you have to be open-minded enough to try, but to be open-minded enough to try, you have to be woken up. Think about how
1: powerful this societal conditioning is that your child who you love, and I'll just say, Let's hang in there with the Lees, because we're going to be proud of the Lees. Oh, that's
0: great. Pretty soon. Mm -hmm.
1: But their initial reaction to their son, who they loved very much, who had a horrific accident through no fault of his own, and simply came to them and said, this plant is helping me, is that they didn't speak for a year. It's crazy. You know, that is a level of conditioning mm. that is just shows you the power of the propaganda around this plant.
0: Oh, yeah, it's it's completely fucked. But here's how
1: his mother and Lee later explained this situation to the San Francisco Chronicle. And here's where we're going to really get behind the lees. When Richard first told me that marijuana helped him, I did not want to hear that. We had always thought marijuana was the weed of the devil. And she's speaking literally. These are very religious people, these are very conservative people.
0: Yeah, and this is like, again, you know, we're talking about uh, where cannabis falls in, in conservative politics. Like, it was not on the conservative shit list until the propaganda campaign, until Nixon and then Reagan, you know what I mean? Like, it absolutely is an invention a very recent history in those types of politics. Yes, so, but here
1: comes the turn. So we thought marijuana was the weed of the devil, but when you have a young son sitting in his wheelchair telling you over and over that marijuana, of all things, has helped him so much with his pain, you just can't dismiss it. We had to gulp hard, pray hard, believe in our son, and then do a heck of a lot of reading and research.
0: Oh! You mean reading and research can help you actually fucking understand something that you've completely just taken the word of propaganda on? Go figure. But good for the Lees, man. That's really great. You know, you would only hope that it wouldn't take that much for every parent in the world, right? Like me, obviously, this is an extreme situation. Their son is in a wheelchair, and he's like, this is the only effective medicine for me. At least it changed their mind.
1: Yeah, and that's uh, kind of been one of our sneaky techniques in the weed legalization movement is by helping people get through chemo without getting sick or (laughs) uh, have an effective pain relief that is an addictive yeah, This is or, all
0: part of our master plan
1: We stopped all those <laughs> We stopped all those children from having seizures <laughs> All to trick them
0: Yeah, into <laughs> doing drugs
1: <laughs> But, so, this this story we, We're gonna like the Lees more and more as we go on cool. uh, So, all of this research Eventually led Anne and her husband Bob These arch-conservatives To the conclusion that cannabis is good medicine And should be legal So they started speaking up locally about legalization at a time when that was a really, really unpopular opinion in local conservative Texas politics, which they were also heavily involved in.
0: Wow. And so they're actually really going out on a limb here because, you know, can you imagine trying to turn around the opinions of, like, you know, a bunch of, like, conservative Texans, telling them that weed, which they think is Devil's plant is actually a medicine. I mean, that's uh, that's a lot of work.
1: Yeah, and this is 1990, so you know you're not pointing to other states where it's legal, and it's not a popular opinion even in the United States. Never right. mind in Texas. Never mind in arch conservative circles. But, oh yeah,
0: the the war on drugs at this point will continue for quite a a while. Like we're not even at three strikes yet. You know what I mean? So, you know, the Lees are out there and they're right by his side.
1: They're talking the talk. They're spreading the good word about cannabis. They're taking all this heat from their friends. But instead of backing down, they actually started their own organization called Republicans Against Marijuana Prohibition, RAMP, which is still to this day a really big player in Texas pot politics.
0: So how many people joined Republicans Against Marijuana Prohibition initially? Uh,
1: I don't think that it's like a a group like Normal where they had huge numbers. This was really a vehicle for them to organize events, to lobby the local governments and state governments. And, you know, so here's how Anne sort of explained why they started that organization. And she. this shows really that they did dig into this issue and they did realize it's about more than just their one son. Right. This is what Anne said in an interview with Leafly and shout out Leafly, they are good friends of mine. And so this is Anne Lee, Richard's mother. The fact that prisons are called the new plantations and they're filled with young black people and young Hispanics, that is a big part of what drives me to do what I do. When you think of the harm that has been done, the lives that have been shattered by the drug laws, it's truly haunting.
0: Oh, wow. And this is his mom here. Yes. That's really fantastic. I mean, that's quite a journey for a person who not too long ago thought weed was devil's weed.
1: Yeah, and it just goes to show you, you know, people do change their minds in this world. Yeah. It's its almost becoming something that you give up on. But people do change their minds, and weed has always been a great conduit to that. It's a great metaphor to point out some of the illogic in our our government and our so-called justice system. And sort of this moment lifts the veil for the lees. I mean, they remain Republicans. They remain conservatives but they are certainly much different representation of those ideas and they are able to extend it beyond their own family and see how these laws are affecting all kinds of people and how unjust they are
0: yeah that's fantastic so you know this is definitely a really inspiring beginning for a guy who is eventually going to open a weed college
1: yeah absolutely so You know, once you went over your parents, only took a year. (laughs) But he's also out, uh, he's just sort of photocopying any kind of educational flyers he can put together about weed and handing them out. He opened up a hemp store in Houston and used that as a platform to educate the local media and politicians and the public. And he's talking about the plant's medicinal uses, its industrial uses, the environmental benefits. hes becomes a fixture at activism conferences and protests, and uh, hemp industry is kind of starting to ramp up at this point. Ooh, ramp. <laughs> ramp. Ramp is the word for today. And so, you know, hes if you've been around the weed movement a lot, you see these people who are just so... Passionate and back in this sort of voice in the wilderness era It really was Lonely work to be out there repping for the plant.
0: Yeah, seriously Today it's really easy to come out and say you support cannabis legalization because clearly There's a lot of people in the world that agree with you But there was a time when anybody who agreed with you could not really be vocal about it
1: And I think this partly, too, gets to why marginalized communities have always been at the forefront of pushing back against this oppressive system. Because if you have it pretty good in every other aspect of your life, Mm -hmm. and you're white, and you got a little money, you're probably not going to get arrested, and the rest of your life seems pretty okay, and it's kind of easy to just go along. Uh, But when we look at the gay community, for example, and particularly in the wake of the AIDS crisis, when we look at minority communities who have been the direct targets of these laws, and when we look at medical patients and and specifically people with very, very severe ailments that they need cannabis to simply have a good quality of life, well, they don't really have the choice to sit back in this fight always. And that's always been the front lines of this fight. And and I think that's always been the strength of this movement. When we see the success of this political movement without the buy-in of either major political party, you know, we've been kind of knocking around the Republicans a little bit. Um, oh, the
0: Democrats definitely have their share of Bullshit weed policy.
1: Yeah, and especially the Democratic Party of 1990. wasn't doing shit for us and Especially in Texas. And so, you know, let's definitely spread that blame around But this grassroots movement is an uprising from the margins from people who felt their backs against the wall and knew the only thing to do Is to fight forward
0: yeah, it's, it's incredibly inspiring, you know, and it, it's the reason that cannabis is more liberalized today than it was then.
1: Yeah, and so a big turning point in that battle, of course, is 1996 when California passes Prop 215, mm-hmm. first statewide medical cannabis law. And Richard uh, Lee has obviously been following this very closely and he decides, I'm going to go to California.
0: Wow, that is fantastic. So, California, of course, the first state in the United States to pass a medical marijuana bill.
1: Arguments over medical marijuana have simmered and boiled before and since passage of California's Proposition 215. Now, a KTVU Channel 2 investigation reveals that in the Bay Area, just about anyone with any medical malady can get a doctor's recommendation
0: for marijuana. And it ended up being one of the freest, most open medical cannabis programs ever. Yeah, it really just allowed this underground thing to flourish. Yeah. And Richard
1: Lee is watching this and certainly wants to be a part of it. So he relocates to California and he ends up getting a job at a place called the Oakland Cannabis Buyers Cooperative, which was one of the earliest medical cannabis dispensaries to sprout up in the wake of this new law. Wow, so one of the first dispensaries in the world, really? Yeah, absolutely, and really, uh, all of those first. This was not a time when hedge fund d bags were dropping millions of dollars to open a, you know, to open a a chain of dispensaries and get rich. All of these first crop sorry, of, <laughs> of dispensaries were opened by activists and almost always by people who were already supplying medical cannabis patients underground, defying the law, and who now have the opportunity to put up a sign and open the doors. And the Oakland Cannabis Buyers Cooperative is most definitely a part of this. So they, they, uh, they see this person who has been working tirelessly to spread cannabis knowledge, and they hire him.
0: Wow!
1: So so he's in, he's in, and then seems like everything's great. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, nothing can ever be great.
0: <laughs> whoop, whoop.
1: That's the sound of the police, <laughs> and they're gonna do their police thing. This is a this is a moment when you know the ink on Prop 215 is not quite dry. If you've ever heard a cop say to you, we don't make the laws, we just enforce them. Well, they kept enforcing the law after the law changed.
0: This is something that still happens. I just saw an article that the police chief in Austin was like, weed was just decriminalized, but we're gonna keep enforcing the old law. And New York City is another place. Cannabis was decriminalized. Uh, in the late 70s in the state of New York, but under Giuliani and Bratton, the NYPD was enforcing laws that didn't exist. So the Buyers Cooperative gets shut down by the feds
1: in, in their early attempts to really try to just stop prop 215 from being implemented and you know this is the era of Dennis Perone still fighting the the feds and the, and even the state government this is the era of wham you know fighting back so so it wasn't an easy road even after prop 215 but when the buyers cooperative got shut down uh, Richard Lee decided to open his own shop at first. He named it sr 71 to honor one of his favorite reconnaissance planes But then he got a cease and desist letter from Boeing. So <laughs> he, he changed it to coffee shop blue sky Oh, man, and so I had the very good fortune to Actually go to coffee shop blue sky when wow. it was open. I was writing for high times at the time And so Blue Sky maintains this sort of aviation theme while the coffee shop part of the name is a nod to the legendary coffee shops in Amsterdam. We have an episode that tells that whole history. And Richard Lee himself had actually visited the Netherlands in 1991, not long after his accident,
0: and he is greatly inspired by this trip. Ah, so he basically brought that coffee shop model to Oakland with him, back to America with him. We really just see how these movements resonate over
1: and over again. Like, you know, we trace the history of the provost in Amsterdam, these sort of anarchistic street theater activists who opened the coffee shops and they changed everything where they live, but also Richard Lee comes there and he has a vision and he brings it back with him to America. Mm. And, And it just continues to push things forward. So in time, you know, he starts with this one little coffee shop slash dispensary, and he ultimately transforms an eight-block stretch of Oakland so thoroughly uh, by opening these different businesses that it became known as... Oaksterdam. Oaksterdam, right? And he loved that nickname, you know? I think some people in local Oakland politics tried to use it as a derisive term.
0: Right, you right. Know? They're like, this turning our streets into Oaksterdam. And people are like, yeah. <laughs> 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 Fuck yeah.
1: And eventually, Oaksterdam includes two coffee shops, a medical cannabis dispensary, a gift shop, his political headquarters where they're doing all kinds of organizing, and then ultimately the 30,000 square foot main campus of Oaksterdam University. Wow. The country's first trade school dedicated to training people for careers in the legal cannabis industry.
0: Being a student here in Amsterdam University is like being a student anywhere else. We read, we study, we have homework, we have midterms, we hang out after school, too. It's a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun. Wow, incredible. And, you know, we often talk about wanting cannabis legitimacy or, you know, normalizing, I guess, is the sort of more widespread term. But... You know, it takes something to instill that, right? It's like creating a space, like, you know, we try to do that by creating pieces of media that make people feel like, oh, uh, cannabis is a good thing, not a bad thing, right? That, that it's, it's not something that needs to be criminalized, that it's something kind of normal. And coming out of a very, very long prohibition, what better way to inspire somebody about cannabis than to show them a place where it's not only treated like a normal thing, like a medicine, like a good thing, right? But also, this is an educational institution. It's a place that's set up for the scholarship, for the study of cannabis, right? Yeah, and 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 the neighborhood that
1: he was in, uh, that became Oaksterdam, was a very economically downtrodden section of the city. Mm. Um, and he brought in these cannabis businesses. And then what you started to see was other businesses opening up and this whole section of the city developing around this Oaksterdam theme. And it became a really cool place to hang out. And it, it attracted, and you know, Oakland is an incredibly diverse city with its own really radical elements. I say that in the good way. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. And so it really fit in Oakland, and it really put a very good face on cannabis and gave people, and lots and lots of media came. I mean, I came to write for High Times, that's pretty on the nose, but there were articles in all kinds of publications, and they always had to acknowledge these basic facts. It's a school, like, as you said. You know, what's more legitimate than that? And we're going to take a break in a second and we're going to see the next step that Richard Lee takes in his evolution as an activist. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Oh, man, I can't wait to hear the rest of this story. We'll be right back. Smoke weedia. And we're back. We're talking about Richard Lee, the founder of Oaksterdam University Literal Weed College. And it's been pretty amazing so far. So when we last left off, he had just opened this university and it had become a beacon of positive cannabis culture.
1: Yeah, I have people from the local community, but people came from every state to educate themselves, to try to find a job in California, or also to bring that knowledge back with them to where they lived. And they have one of those great, you know, sort of pin boards at Oaksterdam University where you put a little pin where you're from. Right, right. And it's all over the country and even all over the world. Oh, I bet. And the result of that has been, you know putting people who really care about the plant into positions of influence in this movement and in this industry. And so as a next step, in 2010, Richard put up $1.4 million of his own money to put Proposition 19, the
0: Regulate, Control, and Tax Cannabis Act, on the ballot. Wow, incredible. So he wants to take it to the next level. He wants to see recreational cannabis legalized in the state of California. Yes.
1: And so the measure ultimately fell short on election night. I was actually at Oaksterdam that night. Wow. Um, You pretty much knew... Going into that night, it was going to take some very surprising results to win. So it was, you know, a tough night. Recreational marijuana use took a hit Tuesday as voters in California rejected a proposition that would have legalized small amounts of pot. Supporters said it could provide revenue to the state and reduce drug-related violence in Mexico. And obviously Prop 19 did not pass, but what it did do is it moved the Overton window on what is possible with cannabis. And the Overton Window is this concept that like, if you don't talk about something and push for something, even when it's not technically popular, it won't progress. Mm. You have to push the envelope in order to create change. Mm -hmm. And so by running this legalization initiative, even though it didn't win, it started a huge conversation yeah. in the state of California and in the country and around the world.
0: Wow, th- that's pretty interesting. And I think it goes to show, look, th- that first Prop 19 from the 70s, it aimed to, like, educate and, and actually get that conversation started, right? And even though it didn't win, it probably sparked some curiosity or, you know, some motivation in some people. And then a couple decades later, you know, you see another effort to do so. and. Obviously, at some point, it was going to reach a tipping point and cannabis was going to be legalized. And of course, six years later, it was. Yeah. And, and th- so the other thing that Prop 19
1: did, in addition to sort of creating this really national conversation around legalization or or pushing it further from, you know, could this even be possible to We're going to vote on this. That's a huge change psychologically. But it also opened up a whole new front in the debate because this is the first time California's underground community of growers and smugglers and dealers and even consumers are coming face to face with the idea of what giving the government control over cannabis and regulation and tax and all of that is really going to mean. And uh, a lot of people you know, chafed at that, afraid they'd be pushed aside in favor of big business as soon as prohibition ended. Uh, some people really pointed to Richard Lee and said he was this corporate sellout and this person who was out to make money for himself and and wanted to destroy the growers. And it got very, very nasty. I reported on this in real time. And even Richard Lee's activism idol, Dennis Perone, somebody mm-hmm. we've done a whole episode about. Yeah, somebody we've smoked
0: weed with together. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And this is somebody who was Richard Lee's inspiration. But when it came to Prop 19, Uh, Dennis Perrone actually joined the backlash and he Mm. wrote a statement in opposition to the initiative. And he basically said this is going to be too restrictive for patients and too friendly to big business. And we see this conversation continuing today.
0: Yep, that's right. And this is kind of a, a complex part of modern cannabis politics that I think sometimes it's hard for for people outside of California or outside one of these states with legal cannabis to really understand is that you might look at cannabis activists and say okay well what they want is legalized pot, right? But it's not really quite that simple. I would say what activists want is decriminalization. It's like you don't want people to get in trouble for having cannabis, for using cannabis, for using cannabis as a medicine, right? Legalization is something very very different. And we're now seeing what that is with prop 64 cannabis is legal for adult use it's no longer medical only and so you know richard
1: lee actually he addresses these issues head on i actually interviewed him about this you know this is what people are saying what do you think and he basically said you know to convince a majority of voters to take on this unprecedented social experiment. And we really have to present them with a vision of cannabis that is acceptable to 50% plus one of the people. And he also argued that growers against legalization were, quote, harvesting bad karma because what's keeping pot prices artificially high is when somebody else gets busted, that right, the violence zone right. so- in Mexico.
0: I think that he's pointing to definitely some problematic reasoning from the gray market cannabis industry at this time, right? Who's scared of, of, of legalization in that their reasons for not wanting legalization have nothing to do with their politics or their sense of social justice. It completely has to do with their bottom line, which is a very capitalist reason to oppose legalization, yes. right? Uh, Quite on the other hand So Lee's got a point there Yeah and I think part of that Stems
1: from the fact that Until very recently Neither political party Was doing anything For the cannabis movement Yeah, Uh, You can point to specific politicians In both parties But they were always the exception To the rule And so if it's a two party system And both parties are
0: against you How engaged are you Really expected to be Yeah, exactly. And even without all those people, all those cannabis people voting, still almost half the state wanted legal cannabis. And I remember seeing that and being like kind of impressed by it to be like, wow, that's more than I would have thought. Yes.
1: And so Richard Lee's vindication would arrive just two years after the Prop 19 vote when full adult use legalization was back on the ballot, this time in Colorado and Washington state. Both initiatives passed easily, and this really set off a sea change in public policy that's still reverberating today. Yeah. So everything's great. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Yeah. So this is actually a few months before the vote in Colorado and California. This is April 2nd, 2012. So the DEA is looking at this vote coming up in November in two states. They got no love for Richard Lee. They want to send a message. And so on this April morning, the IRS with backup from the DEA and the U.S. Marshals Service, and these are armed representatives of the state. They executed a coordinated series of raids on Oaksterdam University, Blue Sky Coffee Shop, and Richard Lee's home.
0: Oh, shit.
1: Yeah, he was awoken by the old gun in the face. You know, here's a guy who's been operating on different levels for a decade Mm -hmm. uh, uh, or more, you know, almost 15 years. And, you know, they don't send a letter. Right. When they want to get your attention. They They just break down
0: the door. They break
1: down the door and put a fucking gun in your face. So he's getting woken up by the feds across town. A whole separate group of feds are busting into Oaksterdam University with battering rams, sledgehammers. It's a school. Yeah, and power saws, you know, as word spread of what was happening. You know, this is a guy who, even if you weren't a weed person, if you were an Oakland person, You had to have some respect for somebody who is just contributing to this neighborhood in terms of creating jobs, in terms of creating opportunities for people, in terms of bringing vibrancy to this neighborhood. He is a local hero, and people got out in the street as soon as they saw this raid happening and they see battering rams. I mean, Oakland's not shy. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, I'm sure. I'm sure it's not the first time they brought battering rams out in Oakland.
1: No, and there's there's lots of clips on YouTube, I'm sure we will put one in this show, mm. of people out in the streets screaming at the DEA, people trying to block the doors, people trying to get in between these battering rams and Oakland University. I mean, the community came out. Feds need to smoke Indica. They need to mellow out. They're too paranoid. Settle down. You're all hyper. And the cops obviously just don't give a shit. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But it was quite clear that this government was not of, and by, and for the people. Yeah. It was against the people. God, that is so fucked. Less than a week after the raid, Richard Lee announced that he was stepping aside from all of his businesses, and he's in part doing this to protect them. Mm-hmm. He, he's, he basically made statements to the effect, the government is coming after me, mm-hmm. and I will step aside from everything I've built and disassociate myself from it so that it can go on, and if they want to come get me, they know where to find me so he has to give up everything he's built. He is very much on the hook for massive federal drug charges, mm. and he estimated that based simply on the number of cannabis plants that were seized, never mind anything else, he could have done 13 years or more in prison, never mind how the IRS can come after you, never mind everything else, but ultimately, and we see this in a lot of cases where the, where the government knows they're wrong, They inflict the damage, but they never charge him with anything.
0: Yeah, they're like, oh, you got a problem with it? Okay, file the paperwork. You know what I mean? And they hide behind the bureaucratic process, right? Like, what is the point of laws if the authorities can just use their might to break down your fucking door in the middle of the night and then when it comes time to explain it, they say, here, fill out this form.
1: Yes, but you know, uh, like all great moments in weed history, there's a lot of adversity, but we've had some great moments along the way. And another great moment as we wrap it up is that last year, the statue of limitations against Richard Lee finally ran out. And I actually saw Richard Lee recently, he was having a going away party at Oaksterdam University cause he has decided that he's gonna move back to Texas. Wow, Where it all began for him, where his mom, Ann Lee, is still a prominent, proud, and loud cannabis activist. And that they are going to bring legalization to Texas. And I say the Lone Star State has no idea what is coming their way.
0: That is absolutely incredible. Wow. Imagine Texas with legal weed. Cannabis-infused barbecue, anybody? (laughs) I'm down. Yeah. Wow, that is an absolutely incredible story. And Oaksterdam University is truly a place that is going to be remembered for eons in cannabis history. You know what I mean? It's such an important place in cannabis history and a place that elevated the plant in a way that it had never been post-prohibition.
1: Yeah, and I think the real legacy of Richard Lee and Oaksterdam University specifically is in its graduates. Thousands of people have graduated from Oaksterdam University. They've gone into activism. They've gone into the industry. They've gotten good training, not just in how to buy and grow and sell and distribute cannabis, but how to represent the plant, how to represent this community. And that has proliferated out in so many ways, I, it just through my reporting alone, I've met so many people that when I say, How'd you get your start in this? Ah, I went to Oaksterdam University.
0: Yeah, dude, th- that's incredible. And it's like the skills that they're learning up there, right? When they bring them out into the world and they innovate and they compete with each other, that's how we get all the amazing strains. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's in the legal era, in an era of openness where you can actually share this knowledge with each other. It elevates the entire craft. And what that means for us at large, fundamentally is better weed. That's what makes for better weed. And that's a really big argument for why cannabis should just be legal. That, that it should just be an open world. You know, one thing we didn't have in Prop 215 was as open an environment. No one could invest as much money in their growth. There wasn't as much freedom to innovate. And in a more open era of cannabis, you've got very skilled people learning, sharing that knowledge, putting it to good use. And in the end, we all smoke better weed. That's a beautiful thing. Well, that was an incredible story, Bean. Thanks so much, and thank you for sticking around and hanging out with us. If you want to learn more about Oaksterdam University, it's a pretty cool place. Just Google it. You'll find everything you need. Uh, Yeah, that's it for us. We'll see you next time. Great Moments in Weed History is a Spoke Media production. It's hosted by me, Abdullah Said, and David Beanenstock, a.k.a. Bean. We're produced by Cody Hoffmacher with help from Reyes Mendoza, Trey Jones,
1: and Carson McCain. This episode was mixed by Jonathan Villalobos. Our executive producers are Aliyah Tavakolian and Keith Reynolds. We're recorded at Gold Digger Studio by Gabe Wilhelm.
0: Shout out to our patrons on Patreon. If you want to follow us on social media, we're at GMIWH Podcast on all platforms. Check out our show notes for links to our sponsors. Support us by supporting them. Thanks for listening.
1: Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You could put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com, and that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanenstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, Pax. Go to pax.com and use promo code greatmoments, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.